Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're going to be talking about palm trees and the origins of their diversity. Few of you out there will not have seen a palm tree or at least recognize the overall shape of a palm tree because they're ubiquitous, especially in tropical areas around the globe. But the question of where they came from and how they got to be what they are today lies in a big way in the fossil record. And that's exactly what my guest is here to talk about. Joining us from the University of Kansas in Lawrence is Dr. Kelly Matsunaga. Dr. Matsunaga uses the plant fossil record to understand how plant form and diversity has changed over time, what kinds of major patterns and processes underlie plant evolution, and how biotic and abiotic processes influence the diversity of plant lineages. And as I mentioned, this is all going to be focused on palms today because they have left behind an incredible fossil record. More than that, they can tell us something about how ecosystems such as tropical rainforests evolved, as well as the history of biogeography on this continent. But before that, I have a quick announcement for you. Hey friends, are you interested in plant science and conservation but don't know how or where to start? Well, listen up because I have really exciting news for you. In 2022, the Oak Spring Garden Foundation will award their annual Early Career Fellowships, which includes two plant science-related fellowships. The first is the Fellowship in Plant Science Research, and this will be awarded to one plant scientist with preference for those working on organismal plant biology. So if you have interest in a specific type of plant, a genus, maybe a species, that's the one for you. The second is the Fellowship in Plant Conservation Biology, which will be awarded to one plant conservation biologist who is working on projects to conserve plants as well as the landscapes and ecological systems that they comprise. Now, my favorite part about this is both of the fellowships will include a $10,000 individual grant and a two to eight week stay at the Oak Spring Estate in Upperville, Virginia. I have been to this estate. It is amazing what's going on there. There is so much potential, and I must say the accommodations are quite cozy. This isn't your average field station, people. Best of all, there is no entry fee to apply, and applicants that are not selected for the fellowship can opt in to be considered for the interdisciplinary residency program, which includes a two to five week stay on site with another individual grant. Now, pay attention, this is the most important part. Applications are due by July 15th, and the residents and fellows will be selected by committees of relevant professionals. To learn more about these fellowships and or the residency programs, please check out their website, osgf.org. Once again, that is osgf.org. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. All right. I highly recommend you check out those fellowships, but let's get on with the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Kelly Matsunaga. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Kelly Matsunaga, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here, and I'm really excited to talk to you today. But first, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. My name is, as you just said, Kelly Matsunaga. I'm currently an assistant professor in ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Kansas, and I'm also curator of paleobotany in the Biodiversity Institute which is sort of the collection of natural history museums um, here at KU. 
that's really exciting. Paleobotany to me is, uh, I have to live vicariously through people like you because it's something that was has always interested me, but I went a different path with my career. So I'm really excited to pick your brain about this. But one of the things that always interests me is how you came to paleobotany in the first place. Were you a fossil kid, a plant kid? You know, Where did the combination of the two really find their way uh, into a fruitful career for you? Yeah, so I... Uh... I would say that I came to paleobotany through a lot of sort of happy accidents. Um, I was not a paleo kid or a plant kid. Hmm. Um, I got interested in plants when I was in college. I was not a science major, but we all had to take intro, some kind of intro biology course as a general education requirement. And so I took introductory botany and that's what really got me interested in plants sort of specifically the the whole evolutionary story of plants that uh, the professor that taught the course, this is Frank Shaughnessy at Humboldt State University, who was able to sort of weave through the course of, of, of the class. So that's what got me into it. And I became a botany major. And paleobotany came later when I was a little bit later on in my undergraduate career, I took a plant anatomy course. Um, anatomy was sort of my first major interest in, in botany. And I was uh, started doing a research project with uh, another botany professor looking at development. And I was not at all interested in paleobotany at that time, but he was a paleobotanist. This is Dr. Alexandru Tomescu, Mihai Tomescu. I think you've actually spoken with um, some of his other students on this show. No, oh, nice. Uh, Alex Pippis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we came out of the same lab. Cool. Yeah, so I was working on him with living plant anatomy and development. And eventually he convinced me to take a look at a fossil. And, <laughs> and so that's kind of where it started. Wow. I really love hearing those stories because it just goes to show you that you don't have to have a plan going into this sort of stuff. And you never know what sort of, like you said, a happy accident can do, especially when it comes to like your career path. But it's cool that this was sort of first couched in botany and anatomy, but then applied to fossils. But what better way to find sort of a route into paleobotany than really enjoying and trying to understand various plant structures and how they work and how they're connected to, you know, through evolutionary time. Yeah. And so much of being a paleobotanist is plant anatomy <laughs> and plant structure and and plant ID for, for that matter. Um, you know, a lot of what we're doing when we're working on a flora trying to ID plants is, you know, we're looking at its structure, um, but we have to figure out what group of plants it belongs to. And that requires, you know, having been exposed to all of plant diversity um, to do that. So, you know, coming in with uh, already liking plant anatomy really helps because it can be difficult subject matter to learn. Yeah, for sure. It's it's kind of obscure. And, and especially I would imagine looking at fossils, you're not guaranteed that you're looking at something that exists still, let alone has a link to yeah. anything that you're familiar with. Because, you know, as a botanist, you kind of have to be in a certain realm. It's not like you can look at all plants and know all plants. That would actually be kind of sad if you <laughs> one day were like, yeah, I've seen them all. We're done. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, IDing plants out in the field um, in, in some ways is similar, but I always always found it a little bit more rewarding or maybe a little easier just because you have clear parameters, you know what is already supposed to be here and you sort of know what the options are. When you're dealing with a plant fossil, all bets are off. Um, not entirely. When you're in a particular time period or area, um, you can narrow it down. But, um, you know, we, we always find things that are unexpected. 
which is, I guess, one of the most exciting things about the field, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in terms of that, I mean, like you said, it depends on the time period you're looking at. And plants offer this really uh, like exciting but also overwhelming fact that they've been around for a really long time. So, you know, from early days to where you are now, was there ever sort of an intent when it came to what era you were looking at? Or did you just kind of, again, follow along with what was available and where it, that took you? Yeah, there's a kind of a combination of the two things, but but really, especially the things that I found myself working on were, you know, a combination of what was available to me at the time and um, kind of following my nose or following my instincts and interests in kind of, you know, whatever, whatever direction it ended up taking me based on what I found of the material I was working on or the time period I was working on. So uh, there's an element of, again, sort of serendipity there, mm-hmm. at least with the work that I've done. Um, I'm sure that's that's not true for everybody. Sure. So in terms of the work that you've done, I mean, it seems like looking over your research and, and what you've done, there's a heavy evolutionary component to all of this. And that's exciting because, you know, we can look at the molecular evidence, we can look at the relationships between organisms, but few things have that like tangible, no, this is a deep time perspective, a window back in time, so to speak, than fossils. And so, you know, using fossil evidence to infer evolutionary histories is just to me, I mean, obviously it makes so much sense, but it's it's so exciting because you you really are using fossils as sort of a time machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the fun part. And that's kind of the, the side of paleobotany that I think I enjoy the most is being able to sort of put things into that deep time perspective. I mean, I also really like just nerding out on a weird fossil yeah. um, <laughs> and studying, you know, studying a specimen. But, you know, one of the, the aspects of botany that got me into this was that that evolutionary story. And I think that's sort of, you know, one of the things that's stuck with me um, from from the beginning. For sure. And so the reason I actually discovered your work was through all the stuff you've done with palms. And so from those early days of being like, hey, I'm going to force you to look at this fossil and realizing you loved it to now kind of focusing in on palms. How did that kind of come about and and why palms in general? I mean, there's many reasons to love them, but what made it uh, special for you? Yeah, so I still study palms because I think they're a really interesting and beautiful group of plants. Um, but that's not why I started on them. <laughs> Again, it's sort of like I, you know, I just sort of follow these threads and they take me to sometimes unexpected places. So I I got interested in palms because as a PhD student, sort of early on um, in my doctoral work, I was working with my advisor on a flora from India. Mm. Um, uh, so this flora is about 66 million years old. It kind of brackets the very end of the Cretaceous in India. And there are a lot of really nicely preserved, really unusual plants in this flora. And there are also a lot of palms. So we were looking at mostly focusing on the monocots in the flora. because my, my advisor is an expert in fossil monocots. And the flora is just full of palms. There are all these kind of funky plants that we don't know <laughs> what they are, what group of plants they belong to, whether they're even, there's, there's one fossil that we're not even sure if it's a gymnosperm or an angiosperm. Um, and, you know, there's only one specimen of it and we only have part of it. So, you know, there are those sort of mystery plants, but on the other side of it is there are just like tons of palm fossils, including stems and in some cases flowers, but also a lot of fruits. 
So I was working on trying to figure out some of those fossils. And that kind of brought me to reading the literature on palms and some of the questions regarding their evolutionary history. And I realized that there are a lot of interesting things we could learn if we looked really carefully at some of these fossils, particularly the ones from India, but also in other in other areas. So that's how I got to palms. But, you know, they're such an interesting group because in some ways they kind of all look the same, <laughs> at least from, you know, when you're standing back and looking at them. And sure, of course, sure. like, you know, anyone that has spent any time, you know, studying and IDing plants, you know, they don't really look the same. But in some ways, you know, I, I never thought about them. You know, I, I, I grew up in Hawaii around lots of palms and I never spent any time thinking about them. I went, I had to go to Michigan to, to get into palms. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's, that's sort of my origin story with palms. I love it. And, and you know what, it's a really refreshing and honest take. I'm glad you admitted to that, but I mean, here's a career built around something that, like you said, charismatic, I think even the non botanically inclined among us can point and say, that's a palm. But mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm obsessed with plants and even I kind of feel like I, I can't tell really one from another. And you just start to get this idea of like, what are you even looking at when you're distinguishing these things? And I have a lot of respect for people that can do it. But yeah, it's it's an interesting dichotomy and sort of, you know, digging through your work, you see this repeated, at least in the literature reviews sections and stuff, is that, you know, for as charismatic and as important as many palm species are, there is a still a lot of mystery, especially as it relates to their evolutionary history. And kind of going back to what you had mentioned with pieces versus common fossils, you know, it's it's cool to find these mysteries and these little fragments that are like, oh, what is that? Maybe we can explore that. But it's also really cool to have something that's like hyper represented because, mm-hmm. you know, the vagaries of the fossil record kind of already are against you <laughs> in a lot of ways. But when you can find a lot of resolution, that can answer so many more questions than a lot of these mysteries can potentially. Yeah. And palms are it's sort of an interesting problem because they actually have a really good fossil record. Hmm. Um you know, at certain time periods, you can pretty much find them in, in almost every fossil flora, even if, you know, whoever's describing the flora doesn't make a big deal out of them. A lot of times they're there. Hmm. But you sort of contrast this to if you start to look at, okay, we have palms here, but what kind of palms are there? That's when we realize we, we actually don't know as much about the fossils <laughs> um, as, as I guess you would think we would based on how many of them there are. So often you can, if you have an entire leaf, you can maybe get it to, to subfamily, which compared to some other groups of plants or angiosperms is, is pretty good. But, uh, you know, I, I, I I'd sort of hoped we could do better, um, <laughs> especially if we if we looked at reproductive structures. Right. So I fruits, flowers, things like that, because if we could kind of nail down or at least refine, you know, when all of these different lineages of, of palms actually originated, that we could use that later on to ask some more general questions about, you know, the the factors that have contributed to their evolutionary history and, you know, their success in the tropics today. So Right. And so really, it sounds like finding those fruits and flowers are vitally important to answering those questions versus, you know, leaves or or I hesitate calling it wood in front of an expert, <laughs> but yeah, you know, trunk stuff. <laughs> yeah, trunk stuff, stems. Uh, you know, the, I focused on fruits and flowers because, you know, they're sort of the low hanging fruit. Oh, God. <laughs> 
Um, puns are welcome. Puns are welcome. Uh, uh, well, I walked right into that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not at all convinced that especially the stems are not useful in that respect. There's a, a scientist that did his doctoral work looking at the anatomy of palm stems. This is um, Roman Tomas. And was able to put together a really nice data set. And so he has a few papers in which, you know, they, they looked at some fossil palm stems and were able to, to get them into sort of subfamilies, tribes, smaller groups, oh, things wow. like that. It's more, the, the data is more focused on certain parts of the palm tree, uh, palm phylogenetic tree, but I think it's promising. So, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to write off stems and other organs, but uh, getting that information on palm stem anatomy uh, from living palms is a lot of work. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really hard to do anatomical work, particularly on palm stems, because they're full of hard tissues, uh, fibers, sclerids, and also a lot of silica. They're basically full of glass, so oh. they 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 dull your your microtome or saw blades immediately. Um, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So actually, historically, some some of the ways people have prepped palm stems for anatomical study is actually similar to how geologists study rocks. They make thin sections, essentially, by embedding and then grinding them down. Thin. Wow. That's pretty wild. So, I mean, again, this is the the beauty of science is it's it's different lines of evidence kind of all coming together to, you know, hopefully make a more complete picture. But, you know, for your side of it, flowers and fruits seem to be really important. And those are really exciting structures because, I mean, again, that's kind of what reproduction, you know, it, it all comes down to how species multiply and then obviously diversify. And you can tell a lot by the different structures, I'd assume. But even backing up a little bit in terms of like how things fossil, the likelihood of things fossil, I mean, palms being monocots and being, you know, sort of kind of woody ones at that really puts them apart from what we can, uh, you know, attempt to understand in the fossil record for other monocots, right? Yeah, um, certainly their habit as being, well, not all of them are trees, but um, sure. a lot of the ones in the fossil record are trees. And also the environments they're growing in and things like that, I think, do contribute to them having this amazing fossil record and the fact that they've been they've been widespread just geographically for, for a long time. So, you know, by around the end of the Cretaceous, they're kind of everywhere oh, wow. and then continued to be everywhere basically until the present day. I mean, there are range contractions as, you know, the, the poles started to, to cool off closer to the present. But it also means that because they're everywhere, you have a much better chance of, of finding them than perhaps some other some other lineages. You know, it's sort of uh, there's a lottery aspect to the fossil record and fossil preservation. So. You know, the more of them there are, the more likely we are to find them. That's awesome. And again, going back to the importance of just having resolution, especially, you know, when you're early days trying to get a data set together, I can imagine yeah. <laughs> that's uh, also a nice component of that as well. But... Oh, yeah, I got really it could have gone the other way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I. I... I think that, you know, if you have a if you have big data, you can always find something interesting in there. But I do feel really lucky that it it sort of turned out the way it did, that we we're actually able to use the fruit data to figure out what groups the fossils belong to. Because it doesn't always work out that way. Sure. <laughs> uh, and speaking of big data and, and big questions, I mean, that's kind of at the heart of your career, it seems like, or at least your research interest in the palm sector is that 
you want to know about evolution and diversification of these. So how how do you translate sort of these fruit and flower fossilized remains into answering bigger questions about sort of the evolutionary history through time? I mean, the Cretaceous is, you know, in terms of angiosperm evolution, fairly recent, quote unquote, but like that's still a huge span of time to start plugging away at some of these big picture questions. Yeah, so the place I start is with building a tree, so an evolutionary tree or a phylogenetic tree. And once you have a tree, there are then other questions you can ask. But what my work has been focused on to this point is just getting those trees. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously you have to start with the specimens, but once you understand how all of those species or whatever level you're looking at are related, then you can then apply that information to looking at, okay, so when did, you know, this group of palms originate? What else is happening then? How are they distributed? Things like that. And so for instance, if you start to see lots of palms diversifying at a time when it was really wet, when tropical rainforests are expanding, that potentially tells you something about why they were diversifying, why they were spreading out all around the world. That's sort of a, you know, a very simplified example, but to get there first, you know, we have to know when these groups show up and, and potentially where. And so we couldn't really do this before with many palm fossils because a lot of groups within palms don't have sort of single traits that characterize them. So if you look at a fossil, you see this trait and you know immediately, oh, it goes to this group of palms. It's not the case for most of them. It is that it is for for one group, um, but for most of them, you really have to do the analysis at least to get at that kind of resolution. Wow. I, it's just like thinking of the details you need to look at and, and just some of my own struggles in the field with keys and going like, what is this? Does this classify as this? And I can only imagine that mm-hmm. gets more difficult the farther back you go. And so in, in thinking about looking at even suites of traits and hoping you can connect it to something that, uh, you know, you can recognize today or lineage that's recognizable, uh, you know, I would imagine that going farther back in time from, say, like the Eocene down to the Cretaceous, there's a chance you might pick up things that really don't key out to anything mm-hmm. you recognize. And and what is that conundrum paint yeah. for a paleobotanist like you? Um. I think it's really interesting when we find the things that that don't fit in. It can be irritating at first because, <laughs> you know, we, we sort of want to be able to say what something is. But I think the species, the fossils that are completely extinct and that, you know, we don't see anything like them today actually can tell us a lot more in the end than finding something that, you know, is an exact replica of a living species or a living genus. So... For instance, you know, if we can kind of fill out all of the the species or taxa that are stem groups, for instance, so they're extinct lineages of living groups, and they have unusual combinations of of traits, you know, maybe they have leaves of that we see in one genus and the fruits of another that can tell us something about how traits evolved in the family and how those groups evolved. You know, in, in for palms, I haven't really encountered that yet. Most of the fruits I've seen or I've I've worked with fall fairly neatly into living lineages. 
but that's, you know, of course, based on, you know, the analyses I've done. So the, the major sort of asterisk there is that we're looking at single organs. <laughs> and so if we were to have the entire plant, would it still go into those groups? Would we see more unusual combinations of characters? We just don't know. And, you know, so for now, we just have to take our results as they come. But there's always that possibility. And that's also why paleobotanists like to be able to develop ideas or concepts of the whole organism. Hmm. So not just a fruit or a flower, but, you know, the fruit plus the flower plus the stem plus the leaves, all of those things. Yeah. You know, again, I could see that this this sort of balancing act between frustration and excitement because it's always new things. It's always something really exciting that, you know, again, you're the first to see it in sometimes millions and millions of years. But it's yeah, uh, I would assume the odds of finding sort of articulated structures that are associated with bigger organs, it's it's probably pretty rare. I mean, I, I also, I don't know what I'm talking about, and it might vary from region to region. You know, so. <laughs> for, for palms, we almost never find them together. Darn. <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's often true for, you know, larger plants, um, especially those that shed organs during their lifetime. Mm. We rarely find them fully articulated. Smaller plants, uh, there are there are cases, you know, where we see, basically have the whole thing compressed and nice. things like that. But usually, that instinct is correct that we usually don't find them connected. So the way we put them back together is often, especially for larger plants, by finding smaller or subsets of the plant connected. So maybe you find a fruit or a flower attached to a stem or a leaf attached to a stem. Then you find that stem attached to another structure. And so you kind of, you know, you're, put, you're putting those links together. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, instead of finding things physically attached to one another, Another thing people look for are shared traits that are sort of unusual and distinctive. So there's a sort of a, a, you know, a classic example from 1800s in paleobotany of uh, developing the concept of, of seed ferns. This idea originated when the paleobotanists studying these fossils realized that the seeds they were looking at had these really unusual glandular sort of trichomes or hairs on them, these glandular structures. And they never found them associated with these leaves that are sort of fern-like, but those leaves and also the other organs also shared those same types of glands. So based on the presence of these sort of unusual structures, things that are not common that you don't find in other species or other taxa based on their presence in these sort of disarticulate organs, they're sort of able to, to put the plant back together hmm. using those lines of evidence. So those are kind of the two classes of how you put disarticulated fossil plants back together. You look for shared traits and usually very unusual traits, or you find them physically connected in sort of a piecemeal kind of a way. Or you get extraordinarily lucky and you find a gorgeous fossil that has everything connected or almost everything connected. <laughs> oh, and those days must feel exceptionally good. <laughs> and they happen. Um, but yeah, uh, not as often as, as, as we would like. Sure. Rare treats, but treats nonetheless. Um, but, you know, what I like about reveals something about the process of all of this. And it's not like you're pulling rocks out and going, oh, I know what this is. This is here. We'll just kind of take a picture of it and write the paper up. It's done, done, done. 
there really seems like there has to be a lot of time spent with the specimen, just looking, observing, hyper-detailed sort of detective-level studies of these features to even start to get an idea before you start making the measurements and descriptions and even thinking about mm-hmm. writing the paper. But that that in and of itself, like as someone that, like I would assume you really enjoy that part of it, that's got to be a whole chapter of this work that goes unseen but is really fun. <laughs> Yeah, and you kind of have to like it. <laughs> or, you, know, you have to like the work or the work doesn't get done. But yeah, the, you know, I think pretty much any paleobotany paper you look at has that element um, behind the scenes. And sometimes it's upfront in the paper. It depends on, you know, the type of, of study it is. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of that sort of detective work phase, which can be really rewarding. And, you know, I'm early in my career, but, you know, there are very experienced paleobotanists that, you know, have, have worked on a group or have worked on an area for so long, they, they can look at a specimen, they know exactly what it is Hmm. immediately. So, you know, I'm not there yet for most of the systems I work in, but being able to do that comes from having gone through this process many times over and over again. So... Sure. I guess like the modern example is when I go out with some of the more seasoned botanists and they have memorized pages of keys and I'm like still pulling apart my book going, I don't know what this means. What's a thirst? They know exactly what trait to look for. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, maybe they can even see it just from, you know, 10 feet away or not, or they go up there and take a look at it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very much the same thing. Yeah. And so the the tree building aspect of your work, I mean, that in and of itself is really interesting and something most people have no experience in doing. And so how do you go from these descriptions of, you know, after you've analyzed the fossil, written down everything, where do you start to begin to put trees together? I mean, there's an obvious connection with shared characters there, but to build a phylogenetic tree, especially through time, that sounds very alien to me, I guess, as someone that has no experience doing it. So the way we do it for fossils or, you know, if if we want to, if we want to do this with fossils, I mean, if you're just looking at living species, um, you start with something like DNA data. Mm -hmm. In the past, before we got really good at sequencing DNA, we also used morphology and anatomy. And so for fossils, all we have is the structure of the fossil. So we have anatomy, we might have uh, sort of gross morphology. And we don't have DNA pretty much ever. Bummer. Uh, Maybe in some very rare cases of uh, relatively recent material that is not entirely fossilized, but we never have (laughs) DNA. So we start with morphological and anatomical data, and we put together a data set based on that. So what I mean is that we first figure out, okay, what are the fossils we're going to include? Is it one? Is it many of them? The group you're looking at is extant, if if it still has living members, then you decide what living species you're going to include. You can, but you can also do this with entirely extinct groups of organisms. So you choose all of your species or genera, whatever taxonomic rank you're going to be looking at, you choose all of your, of your species, and then you choose all of your traits, all the traits you're going to look at and quantify. So you end up with a data matrix. So you've got species on one side, it's basically a big grid, (laughs) um, and then characters in the rows. And this is essentially the same type of data that you use when you're just looking at molecular data. Mm. You're looking, if you're using a molecular data set, 
all of your traits, all of your characters are, are, are nucleotides. Oh, okay. In this case, our traits or characters might be seed number. It might be how many rows of sclerids are there to the outside of the hmm. seed, things like that. So the idea is to capture as much morphological variation as possible for the set of species that you're looking at to end up with, with a data set that encompasses all of that. Um, and so that's the raw material that goes into the analysis. Um, there's a whole process of selecting traits that you're going to what we call score. So when you look at a specimen to see what trait it has and how you're going to add that to your data set, that's called scoring. So when you go through and score all of the species, you have to first decide what traits you're going to look at, how you're going to define them. A lot of what we work with are what are called um, discrete traits. They're not quantitative in the sense that, uh, you know, it's like measurement data or numbers on a uh, continuum. These are things that we have to draw boundaries on ahead of time. Right. Um, you can use continuous or numerical data, but it's a little bit trickier with some of the programs that we typically use to analyze the data sets. But anyway, those types of data are both available to us from the morphology. So yeah, we end up with a morphological data matrix. In my case, because I'm working on a group that is still alive, um, I also take DNA data. Um, and part of the reason is that sometimes the morphological data, when you build a tree with it and you build a tree with the genes, they don't match up. Hmm. So for a group like palms, I combine data sources. So I use both DNA data to reconstruct the relationships among living species and then allow the morphological data to determine the placement of fossils among living species. Wow, that is cool. And I really love sort of this integration of modern and past. And that's what, again, I really, really appreciate and respect about paleobotanists is that your inference spans the spectrum of extinct and extant through time periods that we can't even fully comprehend. And it's so thorough, you know what I mean? It, it, I just feel like it gives such a more complete picture and understanding of these lineages. But the other part of it, is you you had hinted at that you said something you build the tree you look at what's going on and you can kind of start pinpointing sort of like oh these were happening in tropical climates or things were drying out there so you're pulling in lines of evidence even beyond the botanical world of you know rock dating and sort of these paleoclimatic modeling aspects to start answering some of these big picture questions about the evolutionary patterns you're seeing. So, I mean, hats off to the thoroughness and the breadth of information that you're working with and trying to understand. Yeah, I think uh, there's a, a lot of time and detail work that goes into building the trees. And I think once you have it, there are a lot of interesting questions you can ask and you can start to integrate other sources of information. Now, pretty much everything I've done so far is just focused on, on getting those trees and kind of the next phase of things I want to do is to really start testing some hypotheses that, you know, have been tossed around in the literature, which I think, you know, this type of, of data, the fossil data has important bearing on but we really haven't been able to get at it before. And so, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out, you know, what I want to know and what the, what the community wants to know and whether we can actually answer those questions with the information that's available. 
And so one of these questions has to do with the relationship between palms and the origin of modern tropical rainforests, Mm. because today most palm species are found only in tropical rainforests. And this is, you know, a biome that has been around for quite a long time, but there's some debate on when exactly these environments originated and sort of what their role is in the evolution of palms. So one idea is that, you know, basically palms were always tropical. They were always tropical, found in tropical rainforests. The problem with that is that palms go all the way back to, you know, at least the the late middle Cretaceous. And a lot of people are not convinced that these types of environments were around at this time, because there isn't a lot of sort of direct evidence for them. That's not to say that they couldn't have been around or were, you know, not sort of restricted to certain regions or or areas, but the evidence as far as their extent is sort of of mixed. Hmm. We really start to see them take off later on in, in, in the Eocene. So there are, there are several possibilities. So palms are always tropical. And, you know, when these environments really expanded during the Cenozoic, palms sort of went with them. Hmm. Another option that I want to explore, and this is, you know, this is totally reasonable, is whether palms might not have arisen in tropical environments, but later, you know, sort of took off when those environments mm. started to spread around the world. So this sort of relationship between palms and the origin and changes in tropical environments through time, I think is just a really fascinating thing that we can now start to look at using Mm. the fossil record and also integrating different areas from plant biology and evolutionary biology. Right. And what interests me the most about those kinds of questions is that these ideas or hypotheses have been put forward. And a lot of times it's, you know, okay, we have scant evidence or maybe because of this one area, we feel it could be this way. But then someone can look in another direction and go, well, it could also be this way. But until you can build those data sets, it's really hard to actually answer those. And and it kind of is it's a really cool place to be to be sort of on the forefront of building enough of a data set to start really chipping away at this, depending on the region you're looking at. But it also is interesting because, yeah, I mean, you do kind of just associate palms with tropical climates nowadays. And the question then becomes is like, is this the pattern that's always been or is it not? And both of those are really exciting, whether you know you have evidence for one or the other, not getting too attached to one in particular can open the door to some really kind of like goosebumps moments in evolutionary ecology. And, you know, again, connecting it to what we see today, this idea that, you know, palms are pretty darn old when it comes to angiosperms. And, and what have they been doing? And, and what we look at outside when we see a palm, you know, are you a more recent thing? Or is this something that your ancestors have been doing for a very long time? I mean, all these things are super exciting. And it's, it's great to kind of be on the forefront of that. Yeah. And I think these are things that, I mean, I'm definitely not the only person interested in this. Um, There are lots of scientists, palm biologists that have been working on these questions for a really long time. But I think there are lots of people that are interested in this that have things to contribute towards kind of getting at this question. And that kind of collaboration is, 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 I think, essential for kind of getting at these types of questions. Because, you know, all of these different data sources, the anatomy, the fossils, all of the the living species and the molecular data all have information that's relevant. Mm. Um, 
And but we don't all have the expertise to deal <laughs> with all of those data sources. So yeah, I think for some, for things like this, collaboration really becomes key. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this is science in a nutshell, and it's really nice to hear from someone doing it, right? Is this idea that I think a lot of people just picture someone such as yourself in the lab going, okay, we're doing this. I figured it out. I'm writing it. I'm publishing it. But (laughs) what you just outlined there is like everyone needs to come to the table. And it's cool to hear, especially disparate fields talking to each other. You know, I can't think of things that are less similar in my mind than necessarily looking at sort of the molecular analysis of a genetic genetic material and then what you're doing with a fossil, but they can inform one another. But also just trying to understand palm diversity both today and you know however far back you want to go. I mean, that in of itself requires so many different people to come to the table and you know, collaborations, they need to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, as far as the fossil record goes, you know, there are always going to be limits of what we can understand from them. You know, there are, there are some questions that are just unanswerable. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean we can't go after them because we <laughs> usually don't know when we, there's a question that, you know, we, we just can't, we can't address. And so I think it's important to also pay attention to how much information you can really extract from, from your data and sort of be honest about that too. Um, I mean, this is something all scientists do, but you know, there's sort of the hope and then there's the reality. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I do think that there's a lot more we can, we can get out of the fossil record. And so just going to keep chipping away at it. Certainly. And so for your work, particularly for the trees that you're building, are there regions of the world that interest you more or are more useful? Or are you just trying to get as much from a variety of places as possible? I mean, again, I'm completely ignorant to how this process works. So how do you start to kind of pick and choose or go after this information? Yeah, so there there are two aspects to it. There's the a lot of the work we've been talking about, which is you know, getting really nice fossils and putting them into our trees. For those, it would be nice if we could get those kinds of fossils from many different places in the world. But in a lot of cases, we can't. So that tends to be a little bit opportunistic. You know, you have a really nice fossil and you take advantage of that. Now, there are lots of places I would like to have those types of fossils from. But sort of the other the other aspect of sort of getting at these questions has nothing to do with the trees and nothing to do with the phylogeny. It's just compiling data on where fossils are in the world and when in the fossil record. So kind of, you know, surveying the literature, um, surveying what's in museums just to get occurrences. Hmm. Um, And just from that, that even if you don't know where in the tree these fossils belong to, you know they're palms. And so you can start to sort of map out where all of the palms are at different periods of time. Hmm. Um, and then if you can take into account, you know, certain factors that may bias that data, you can you can then potentially get at how their range has shifted through time and sort of when and again attempt to to correlate that or relate that with with other factors, environmental, biotic, things like that. So those are, those are the sort of two sides to it. You know, there's the phylogeny, the tree-based approach, which is, you know, taking those really special fossils, getting them into the tree to figure out when different groups originated. And then there's sort of the, 
the broader look at just the, the geographic and the temporal component, which you don't need to know much about your fossil other than <laughs> it's a palm uh, to be able to, to use that. Sure. And, you know, we hinted at some of the ideas you really want to start testing with this data set. But even before you get there, I mean, the, the sheer amount of data you're pulling together, as you just outlined, can already start to give you some of these patterns or interesting patterns to start looking at even before you really start jumping into the analyses that you want to do. And I would assume that as you're putting these trees together with both modern and fossil remains, you start to see certain groups that you know may not have ancestors or may not directly be linked to something that lives today, but others where you can kind of see a trajectory. And so, you know, are you already starting to find interesting patterns in the data just in terms of diversification for, you know, certain lineages were really common back in the Cretaceous. Today, it's, uh, you know, the representatives of a handful of those or something like that? Um, you know, I, I, I think at this stage, we don't have enough specimens <laughs> to really start to get at that. One thing that, however, that like a single specimen can tell you is where a group was in the past. Mm. And so one of the things we kind of see repeatedly is that the groups that we recognize today and that we can find in certain areas of the world previously, you know, had had very different geographic ranges. Mm. And especially because our, our climate's really different today than it was in a lot of the past. It's it's much colder at the poles. So you have these latitudinal gradients in, in temperature and things like that. So palms are, are much more restricted today just because of that, because most of them are completely frost intolerant. Mm. So their natural ranges just don't extend into higher latitudes. So in some cases, because climate was warmer and those temperature gradients um, were shallower, so poles were warmer and things like that, we find palms in areas that we just don't find them today. So there's that side of it that, you know, you know, you might find palms in Alaska and, and things like that. Um, but also, even in more equatorial regions, finding lineages of palms in areas where they, they, they don't exist today. That's information we can start to get at with relatively few fossils for which you know, we know their, their relationships. Um, but as far as anything related to you know, abundance or diversification, we just we don't have the material at, the, at this point. Sure. And I mean, that's a really important perspective to bring to the table is just, again, the vagaries of the fossil record and what you have access to. And I would imagine that, you know, other than just going out to new dig sites and finding these things modern day, a lot of it, too, could be just you never know what's tied up in museum collections and shelves and yeah. basements and somewhere that, you know, could really be useful, which it just reinforces the importance of that aspect of the work is just proper curation and, and collection maintenance through time. Because, yeah, I mean how many new discoveries are made out of something that was, you know, cracked out of a rock a hundred years ago? <laughs> yeah. People make new discoveries in museum collections all the time. And, you know, sometimes material is collected and it's maybe it's been unpacked and, and placed on, you know, in drawers, but, but not much else. Right. So I think there's a lot of stuff sitting in, in collections that's potentially really valuable, but I think also, you know, we, we really do need to keep, collecting specimens and not just for palms, but, you know, to get at a lot of these pressing questions in paleobotany or plant evolution, we, we also just need new material. We need to keep doing field work. We need to look at the specimens. 
Right. And and trying to put this work into context, too, of like the bigger picture of it's it's not just about liking fossils and trying to understand their relationships. I mean, trying to understand how diversity changes and how ranges expand and contract over time, and especially when you have large collaborations with people doing expertise that you yourself don't have the lifetime to to become an expert in yourself. These answer bigger questions about life and how life responds to changes, especially radical ones like humans have wrought on the planet at this point in time. Um, you know, these are really, really important questions to try to start teasing apart. Yeah, and I have, you know, I I do my best to think about these questions, but, you know, I have to constantly work at maintaining that, that bigger picture, um, <laughs> especially because, you know, like me i i do like just nerding out on the specimens sure. so it's easy to get lost in that but but yeah i think you know if if we're honest about you know what the potential is for that work it is getting at that that bigger picture um not just about palms not just about even plants um but it helps us also to get at you know generalities about organismal evolution or processes that have brought us to where we are today things like that so that's awesome yeah and and always important to kind of step away and look out and go okay there's <laughs> there's a bigger world out there but uh, you know thinking about nerding about fossils I love that the, the passion just rings true and and something a lot of people listening can probably emphasize with is when you look at a fossil, I mean, I just get lost in them. Even the smallest one, you're like, oh my God. Do you have any specific specimens or, or field stories or just encounters with a particular specimen that really stand out to you is just kind of those moments where you're like, this is why I do what I do. <laughs> so... I mean, I've, I've had experiences in the field where like, I found what I thought was just this really great specimen. And so I spent, you know, the rest of the day just looking for <laughs> another one like it. Um, this happened when I was in India, you know, we were in the, the localities we work at. It's not what you think of as sort of your classic fossil locality <laughs> with an outcrop and rocks that you can see a lot of the material erodes out of the ground. Oh. So we're working in crop fields that, you know, aren't being planted at the moment in this, the, the growing season's over. It's just like walking around in old cotton fields and just looking at what's on the surface. That's sort of the first thing you do. And walking through one of these fields and just seeing this palm fruit sitting, it's a, it's a rock just sitting on the surface of the ground. And, you know, so that like that sort of immediate, just, you know, sort of discovery, it's really rewarding, right? Because most of the time you, you know, you don't process the material until you get back to the lab. So you don't necessarily know what you have. But in this case, we just saw this thing sitting on the surface and you could tell exactly what it was. You know, we spent the whole day looking for more, more of them and only ever found the one. Wow. So as far as field experiences go, that's maybe about as good as it gets. <laughs> um, but one of the, I think, the best parts of studying a fossil specimen, especially when you've been working on it for a while, is finding something new and interesting in it that you hadn't noticed before and which allows everything to fall into place. So in one of the fossils I worked on, this is a paper from a couple of years ago, we're trying to figure out, it's palm fruit, we're trying to figure out where it goes. And this is part of why we ended up doing this uh, big CT survey of all palm fruits to build this data set. But 
It had traits that could have placed it in one of several groups of palms, none of which were closely related. So we're like, it could go here, it could, it could go here, it could go here. Like, I, I don't know. And that's, you know, that's really frustrating. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one thing, one, one method we, at least in, in the lab I did my PhD in, we use a lot is micro CT. Mm. So we were micro CT scanning these specimens because we get 3D models out of the CT data, and then we can slice them any which way. We can generate 3D models of, of certain structures. You can kind of do like digital dissections and things like that. And I was working with a CT scan of the specimen. And after, you know, having spent a bunch of time on the rendering, I realized that the endocarp, which is the hard sort of inner layer of the fruit, it actually had this huge hole in it. Hmm. And there was a seedling coming out of it. So there's a little bit of plant tissue coming out of it. And so just having that one trait, the fact that the endocarp has this hole, which we call a germination pore. And we know where in the fruit that germination pore is located to the top. That actually matters. That immediately gets us to one particular group within palms. Wow. And so... Sometimes you get really lucky that you discover a trait <laughs> that's really useful. And that can happen just all in a short span of time in the lab, or in this case, sitting on a computer playing with a 3D data set, hmm. you know, and, and uh, that makes all the difference in yeah. terms of, you know, figuring out a fossil. So that's the point at which, you know, all the pieces come together. Wow. And then you, and then because you're sort of thinking about in terms of being part of this group, you start to look for other traits of that group. And then as soon as you start to look for them, then you're like, oh yeah, it actually has this other thing and this other thing (laughs) that, you know, when you're just thinking about the whole spectrum of palm diversity, you can't always see that. Wow. So anyway, those are sort of two examples of of nice sort of moments uh, nerding out on on fossils. That's wild. And yeah, I love those like sort of crystallization moments that make you go, aha, there we go. But also, how cool is it to capture that moment in history? I mean, literally a moment in this little seedling's life that has been preserved for millions of years. I mean, that in and of itself is incredible. But then to have it all kind of complete a bigger picture is so satisfying. That is I'm glad you're able to share that with us. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, very, it's not a very nice looking seedling. It's hey. not very charismatic. Uh, makes for an interesting figure. <laughs> in sure. the paper. Uh, but yeah, that happened to be a, a really useful trait. Cause sometimes you stumble upon traits that are interesting and you're like, well, it doesn't, doesn't really help <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that much. Cool. But what do I do with this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is awesome. Dr. Matsunaga, this is really fascinating stuff. And I think I speak for everyone listening, saying I'm really excited to see what comes out of your lab in the coming years. I mean, you are at a a really cool point in time. And it sounds like you've got a lot of really great collaborations in the works. So if people want to keep their finger on the pulse of what you're doing, find out more about the research you have done, where do you recommend they go looking? One place you can look is um, I have a a lab website, um, which I try to keep updated with what we're working on. Also, a great source of information on just what paleobotany is up to at KU. You can go to the KU Biodiversity Institute website and go to our division. So I am one of several paleobotanists here at at KU. Um, There's another curator of paleobotany here, Brian Atkinson 
Um, we have a number of students and we also have an, an awesome collection manager, uh, Rudy Servit. So Excellent. Um, there's a lot of paleobotany uh, happening here. Um, and so if you if you go to the website, which I think is being revamped uh, this summer, you can keep up with us there. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a really amazing place to do paleobotany because there's such a long history of it here and there are so many of us. Um, it's not, it's not <laughs> just me. So, so. Oh, that's great. And uh, I might have to bug you a little bit more after this to uh, track some of them down to pick their brains as well. But uh, I'll put up links for everyone that's interested so that way they don't have to stop driving their car to write them down. But uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. This is really exciting and I wish you all the best. And obviously, open door policy, anytime something new or exciting happens in the world of paleobotany, palm evolution, that sort of stuff, uh, reach out because you're welcome back anytime to talk to us about it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been a lot of fun just chatting with you about, about this. Great. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, happy paleobotanizing. Yeah, you too. Cheers. All right, that does it for this episode. What a fascinating topic to study. Once again, make sure you check out those wonderful fellowships over at the Oak Spring Garden Foundation. It's osgf.org. There's a lot of opportunities there for early career scientists. Also, consider supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash plants. Patreon allows me to keep making this show each and every week for you for free. In fact, speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to a bunch of new producers on this podcast. A big thank you to Marcel, Tommy, and Amanda. All of them went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they're getting all of the amazing kickbacks we have to offer over there, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. So once again, if you're enjoying this podcast and you want it to continue to have a future, consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash plants. You can also pick up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, wherever books are sold. I thank everyone that's purchased a copy thus far. It means the world to me, and I really hope you're enjoying it. Finally, we also have lots of customizable merch for sale over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants. All of this helps support the show in one way or another. So thank you to everyone that's done it so far. But that is it for me this week. Once again, thank you for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.